0: Although I'm unapologetically following a chapter in John Stott's book, you'll find that it is quite a careful uh, exposition of the passage we've just read, so I'd encourage you to have that open before you. First Peter chapter 2, page 1218. If you know your history, you'll know immediately when I speak of Edward VIII, that he was the king of the United Kingdom and the British dominions and the emperor of India from the 20th of January in 1936 until his abdication on the 11th of December in 1936. With a reign of 325 days, Edward uh, was one of the shortest reigning monarchs in British history. He was never crowned. There's something I didn't know. Whenever Edward looked back on his boyhood, he said this, My father, uh, the man whom we know as King George, was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, he had admonished me saying, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. The king was convinced that if only his son would remember that he was a royal prince, that he was destined to the throne, then that he would behave accordingly and wouldn't misbehave. For Christians to behave properly, it's important that we too remember who we are, that we have a clear understanding of our identity in Jesus Christ. That's the contention of John Stott in chapter 6 of this book that we've been following this summer, The Radical Disciple. He takes us to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he shows us who we are, because the passage is full of metaphors and images uh, that build up a picture of the life of Christ. So we're going to take some time to look at six of these metaphors, and then towards the end of our time together, we're going to follow uh, John Stott's suggestion that, that it's only as we hold these together and hold them in balance, uh, that we can really achieve mature Christian discipleship. So let's look quickly at these metaphors. We'll be moving pretty quickly through them, so don't, don't worry too much about the fact that I've mentioned there are six of them. The first metaphor that Peter uh, brings to our attentions in verse 2, he reminds his audience that they're like babies. They've been born again. They've experienced what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, you must be born again. So they've experienced a a radical turnaround, a new life born into them, a change in their personality, a new heart and a new life. Sometimes I think we're too quick to leave that metaphor behind. We think that it, it only speaks of that moment. But because a person is born again, there's something else that flows out of that. It's a new life. It's a young life. It's a life that needs to grow. So, there's a a growth. A person doesn't become a fully mature Christian overnight. We forget that we need to grow. Over the last seven years, a huge part of my home life has been about watching babies growing. That's Basically what Claire and I do at home. We sit and we watch and we try to try to manage the whole thing a little bit. So recently we've been watching Ruby learning to eat solid food and learning to go to the toilet. She can now go to the toilet and that is great. Believe me, it's really, really good. We have watched Sophie learning to dress herself. I, I want to say learning to ride a bike, learning to sit on a bike and be wheeled around is, is where we're at, at the moment. We've been watching Patrick learning to read and to write and to control a football with one touch all very important things. But wherever they are, whichever family they're born into babies must grow. It's one of nature's profound laws. So the question is, how do these newborn babies that we are identified to be, how, how, how will we grow? And Peter's answer is to continue to to stick with his nature metaphor. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Not everybody here, I'm guessing, but a lot of you. Have you been around a newborn baby recently? Have you experienced their 100% commitment to getting milk when they want it? Have you ever seen that? Once they start crying for milk, they're unstoppable. You can't negotiate with a baby that wants milk. You can't distract them with the TV or the internet or with a magazine. They don't forget that they want milk. They simply don't ever give up until they get what they want. They take no prisoners. Feed me or else. That's the strategy of a newborn baby that wants milk. That's how Christians are to be in their pursuit of the Word of God, the pure spiritual milk that will allow them to grow. We're to be unrelenting in our desire to grow, to to learn of God more and more. Feed me or else. And by the way, if you're a member of this congregation, you're well within your rights to, to say that to the leadership here. Feed me or else. It's one of the tragic things that I hear from time to time about people who've, who've maybe run into trouble in a particular church community. Despite their desire to stay there, despite their desire to be loyal, at the end of the day, they, they just don't be fed anymore. Nobody's giving this pure spiritual milk that they need. That's a tragic thing to hear of any faith community. The second picture which Peter develops is that of the living stones. So, he moves from the world of biology, of birth and of growth, into the world of architecture, stones, and buildings. Look at verse 4. He tells his community that as they come to Christ, the living stone, they also Like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. You've come to Jesus, you've been born again, and now God is building you into something with others. I want you to think for a second about uh, Peter's image here. He says that each one of us is another brick in the wall. That's what we are. Somehow the individuals that we all are God is is making something of in a collective way. So we belong to each other, each stone cemented to the one beside it, below it, and above it. No stone suspended in midair. Everyone belongs to the building and can't be dislodged from it. In the, the chapter, chapter 6 of this book, John Stott talks about a meeting that he had with Dr. Hobart Maurer, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Illinois. This guy wasn't a Christian, but he had grown up in and around the church. He had turned his back on the church. Why? He said he had turned his back on the church because it had failed him as a young man, and it continued to fail his patients. Uh, the people who were coming to him unhappy and discontent in their lives. And here's what he said. The church has never learned the secret of community. And Stott says it's one of the most damning criticisms of the church I've ever heard, for the church is community, living stones in the building of God. If, if Peter's right and if John Stott's right, then when we see a church where there is no community, we're right to ask, is this a church at all? Or is this just a bunch of people who gather for an hour in the week to, to sing and hear somebody speak? We're stones cemented in beside, below and above one another. We're together and we're nothing when we're not together. So far, Peter has likened us to newborn babies with a duty to grow, stones with a duty to to have fellowship with one another, and now he comes to a third picture where he likens us to holy priests with a duty to worship God. In the Old Testament, the priesthood had, had privileges that were denied other lay people or ordinary people. So the first one was their access to God. The priest was the one who was allowed to go into the temple. They were allowed to go into a, a court of the priests much, much closer to the center, to the Holy of Holies. Uh, other ordinary people were denied that access. A second privilege enjoyed by the priests of the Old Testament is that they were allowed to offer sacrifices to God. So the people brought their, their sacrifices along. They, they laid their hands on them to identify their sin with, with this creature about to be sacrificed. But it was only the priests who, who would kill the, and perform the actual sacrifice. So, in the Old Testament, it's the priesthood who has this full access and this ability to sacrifice to God. Now, now that Jesus has come, our great high priest, that distinction's gone any person who is in Christ has full access and has a right to offer sacrifices of praise to God. We don't need a middleman. Nobody is needed to stand or to bring us to God. So the church is a place where we ought to be worshiping God, and that's something that we do. That's what we do. I suppose Sundays is the time when we see that most clearly. Uh, the church as a a worshiping community. Is the church some kind of a a ghetto, though? Is it a place where you just come to escape uh, once a week from everything else that's going on in your life? Are our only activities to be personal growth as babies, fellowship together like stones in a building, uh, and worship as we offer God our spiritual sacrifices? What about people outside of here? None of these metaphors so far have have talked much about our role in relation to them. And so it is in verses 9 to 10 that Paul introduces a fourth metaphor. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those are, are brilliant images that Peter picks up there. Uh, and for a moment, you, you imagine that, that Peter is just brilliant. He's, he's just, out of his own imagination, dreamt these up. But what's fascinating about them is that he's, he's just lifting straight from Exodus 19. God is talking to his people. He's just brought them out of Egypt. He's just about to give them his law. And here he tells them that if they keep covenant with him, if they obey his commandments then they're going to be this treasured possession of His, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So what what Peter's doing here actually is, is interesting. He's, he's taken a big step to this diverse community. He's writing to them and saying, everything that was true of Old Testament Israel is now true of you. You're the new people of God. You are the the kingdom of priests, you're the holy nation, you're the treasured possession. Folks, are we beginning to understand why God chooses and calls certain people? Why did he call Israel? He called Israel to be a light to the nations. They were to show people who he was. Why does he call the church? To be a light to the nations to show people who he is. So being a a worshipping, fellowshipping, growing community will never be enough until we're an outward community, being a light to the world, being a holy people for God. So far, with these first four metaphors, Paul's likened us to newborn babies with a responsibility for growth, living stones with a responsibility for fellowship, holy priests with a responsibility for worship, and then to God's people with a responsibility for witness. There are two more pictures, and in verse 11, he introduces the fifth. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The Greek words here are interesting. A foreigner, that indicates a person who has no rights, and an exile is a person who has no home. So Peter describes the believers in these words for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's literally true. A lot of them are foreigners. They're scattered all over the Roman Empire. They're they're dislocated from their homes. But he's also talking about their spiritual state. There are people who are, are foreigners in this world. There are people who are in exile, never anymore quite at home in the culture in which they find themselves. So we who are in Christ are foreigners and exiles on earth. As I was thinking about this for a moment, it struck me that we've really struggled with this part of our Christian identity. Uh, we can get it wrong in a couple of significant ways. In some parts of the church, we just ignore this aspect of Christian discipleship, this idea that, that we're supposed to be different, that we are foreigners or, or ex- in exile. Uh, the people I'm talking about, they, they're entirely indistinguishable from the people around them who don't know Jesus at all. That, that seems to be quite acceptable, uh, I think, in the church of today a totally indistinguishable disciple of Jesus Christ. In other parts of the church, we find people who do understand that they're foreigners and that they're in exile, but in the wrong sorts of ways. Their their difference and their holiness, I would argue, is played out in all the wrong sorts of ways. So it's, it's whittled down to something as trivial as what kind of clothes they wear, or what kind of music they listen to, or, or what little habits they have of, of what they do on a Sunday, for example. That's, that's enough to, to say I'm different. And yet their, their actual lives, how they, how they think about themselves in the world, how they spend their time and their money, might be totally indistinguishable again from people around them. Instead of actually being different, they've settled for just being weird. Folks, it seems to me that it takes wisdom and discernment to understand what it is to be, to be foreigners, to be strangers and exiles in this earth. I've come to the conclusion that the only place I can safely look is to Jesus himself. He seemed to know how to live in this earth and yet not be of it. To be right in the middle of, of some messy and complex moral places, but not to be contaminated by it. He's a wonderful model for us. We're to be foreigners and exiles on earth. Peter's sixth sixth picture shows disciples as servants of God. And we'll see this particularly in verses 12 to 17. Peter urges his readers to live such good lives among the pagans that they might see your good deeds To submit to secular authorities, to do good and so to silence the talk of foolish folk, to live as free people without misusing their freedom, but to live as God's slaves and to show proper respect to everyone, fellow believers, God, and the authorities. What strikes me about these verses is how the call to be a servant of God puts us in submissive respectful relationships with everyone else around us. You cannot say, I'm a servant of God and not live well in your relationships, whichever they are. You can't claim to serve God unless you're willing to submit yourself to others for his glory. There's no such thing, it turns out, as private Christian living. All Christianity is public. The life of Christ must be lived out in public. I find that challenging stuff. Folks, we followed Peter very quickly through these six metaphors. Together, they, they paint a portrait of, of a Christian disciple. John Stott talks about the, the Christianity according to Peter let me recap one last time. Newborn babies called to growth, living stones called to fellowship, holy priests called to worship, God's own people called to witness, aliens and strangers called to countercultural living, and servants of God called to be good citizens. One of the benefits for me of reading this chapter in John Stott's book is the next suggestion that he makes. He, he suggests that these six things can actually be, can be whittled down into three balancing couples. He says that we're called, yes, to individual growth, but also to corporate fellowship, to worship, but also to witness, to pilgrimage, and also to discipleship, or to citizenship. And in each of these couples, we're called to a balance. We don't or we ought not to emphasize one at the expense of another. I think this is a a not always very well understood part of Christian maturity. And that is the balance of various aspects of the life that God calls us to. Over the years, as I've observed many people in many different faith communities and in churches, I think the the picture that Peter paints for me here, I think I've seen it lived out. I've seen people who are mature enough to have a little or maybe quite a lot of all of this. They've not settled for one thing. They've not settled for being a worshiper only or only a witnesser. They have not settled for being only a, a public Christian, but they're, they're people who've understood that God calls us to, to many different aspects of Christian living. The trouble we run into is when we choose one of these areas, probably because we like it, and, and make it a, a key area of focus. Here in First Peter chapter two we're given a a wonderful, comprehensive portrait of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we live well when we hold these things together and in balance. Our Heavenly Father, you see, is constantly saying to us what King George V kept saying to the Prince of Wales at that time. My dear child you must always remember who you are. If only I can remember who I am in Jesus Christ, then I'll live in a way that brings Him glory. Let us pray. Father God, this evening we want to thank You for Your Word if we didn't have Your Word, we'd come up with some designer Christianity, some faith that, that appeals to us, that makes sense to us, and that pleases us. But it would not be what You have called us to. Father, thank You for, for laying these things before us. Thank You for the, the, the pure milk of Your Word Thank you for this bit of time you've given us to see these things again. And Lord, we pray that each one of us we would pay attention to what you've shown us here this evening. We'd look to those areas in our lives where we are not yet mature and strong. And where we'd throw ourselves open to you. Where we'd invite you by your Spirit to come uh, and to make us more complete stronger in Jesus. Lord, thank you that you love us and that you mean us well. Come and make us stronger and mature in your Son, we pray. Amen.